Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me on Nerds Adulting for a special episode where I'm joined by special guest Rui Zazana, PhD, nanotechnology and futurist. Today, we're talking about what the future holds for jobs, space travel, and religion. We take a deep dive into science fiction and what the future holds. So, basically, we've already. Okay, awesome. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm an amateur podcast. I'm, a, I'm just, you know, like, like I explained to you in the email, I, I work as a cybersecurity specialist or more like an information security specialist at, at UNC, University of North Carolina. And I just wanted to invite you on because I find you super interesting. And I think um, what you, the questions I have for you, I think you could present some interesting stuff. Um, so I'm just, I'm recording now. We'll just, we'll just go, we'll jump right into it. If that's okay with you. Of course. Okay. Um, so, by the way, this is this isn't uh, obviously this isn't live. You are going to edit, you know, all my um <coughs> and uh, my. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so if there's anything in there you want me to edit out, I'll be happy to do it. Usually, I don't do too much editing, but if there's anything you want, yeah, there's not live anything that that shows up or you think that's on there that you don't want, just let me know. I'll cut it out. Um, if okay. you listen to it and you hear something you don't like, just tell me. I'll be happy to cut it out. I don't. I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable with the stuff that I put out. So Yeah, totally um, understand that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I apologize that I'm just a little sick today. So, you know, I may do some <coughs> some coffee <laughs> here and there. Sorry about that. No worries. It's, it's the time of the year, right? That's uh, for everybody. Yep. <laughs> the um, holiday season. Yeah. So basically, uh, I'm inviting you on. We're going to talk about essentially science fiction um, and or fact. You are a futurist. Um, you have a PhD in nano tech that's is that correct is that am i saying that correctly yeah nanotechnology 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 and nanosciences yes and that so basically how i start off the show with every you know guest i have on um is are you a nerd you know were you when growing up were you a nerd like what kind of stuff are you into and are you still a nerd now what kind of stuff are you into now um so what kind of nerdy stuff were you into when you were growing up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I was pretty much into everything. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, um, Shadowrun, Magic the Gathering, uh, uh, computer games, Starcraft, Warcraft, World of Warcraft. I mean, yeah, you can't describe me as anything but a nerd, I think. And <laughs> honestly, I, I, I'm still doing all that. And now that my kid is uh, seven years old, we're actually playing uh, D&D together. We're playing uh, Magic the Gathering together. So, you know, it's hereditary. That's awesome. Um, it's funny because D&D seems to be a huge underlying theme with the guests that I bring on. And um, unfortunately, I feel like that was something that just none of my friends were nerdy enough to play. I always wanted to, and I never got a chance to get into it. I, you know, I, I read about it, and I've seen stuff about it, but I never got a chance to play it. So it's like one of these things that I want to do at some point in time is learn to play Dungeons & Dragons. But Well, um, you, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a really beautiful thing, I think, because right now D&D is becoming something of a mainstream. And if you go to one of the uh, shops where you can buy magic cards, D&D books, miniatures, and all that, you'll find that something like 30%, maybe even 40% of the participants in D&D games uh, are uh, females. Uh, mm. and, and, you know, that, that's amazing because yeah. it used to be uh, something that only yeah, nerds, only male nerds would do. Now everybody is uh, is taking part. It's become a part of the mainstream. 
Yeah, that is. I always joke around like if Joe Manganiello is playing D and D, then times have definitely changed. You know, he sees this big yeah. buff dude, you know, like playing Dungeons and Dragons nowadays. Like it's definitely crossed over. I would yeah, say. And Vin, and Vin Diesel too. Yes, if, that's if right. Fast and Furious is yes. doing it. Everybody <laughs> should be doing it. That's right, Vin Diesel too. So uh, it's no longer uh, shameful to, to come out and say you play Dungeons and Dragons these days. Definitely. So yeah, um, no and. and and you know, I don't know if I'm taking this to the <laughs> the, the the conversation in the right direction, but uh, it has just uh, recently been declared that Magic: The Gathering is now the most complex game in the world. Um, really? Not, yeah, I don't remember where I read it, but uh, and you know, it's probably something of a sensationalist, sensationalistic yeah. uh, uh, headline. But it's really interesting because uh, it means that now a game that was developed basically 25 years ago and is something very commercial and uh, lots of players are, are playing it, well, it's more complex than chess, which existed for the last thousand of years. It's more complex than Go, which existed for more than 2,000 years. Um, so you see suddenly the new games that only geeks and nerds used to play in the past, like Magic the Gathering, <laughs> suddenly they are the new battleground for the, for the real intellectuals, for the real super intelligences of the humanity uh, to, uh, to battle it. Yeah, that's that's really cool. It's just uh, I always joke around because when I was a kid growing up, you know, I used to get beat up for these things for having like a Ninja Turtles backpack or um, what have you. And but nowadays, like Ninja Turtles is cool. Or having a Minecraft backpack is cool. I have a son who's ten and a daughter who's seven, and so like video games and things that things like that of that nature are definitely cool now, which is very interesting. Which I love. I th- I'm just so happy that you know, nerds being a nerd is okay now versus when i was you know eight or nine years old yeah, so. but, but it's, it's not just okay if if you look at science fiction back about 20 years ago there was a tv show called sliders mm-hmm. uh, where they traveled between different dimensions different realities and one of the dimensions they visited i still remember it because i was saying oh i was i want this to be my dimension so much <laughs> one of the dimensions they visited uh, there was uh, uh, the, the the people who were really no, adored and were the real celebs there uh, were not uh, were not basketball uh, players, but trivia players. I know and exactly they, what episode you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and, I and, know. Yeah, yeah, and and I said there is no way this is going to to happen. I was something like 19 at the time, but 20 years later, this is exactly what's happening because esports today are bigger in many ways than uh, you know than the entire. Uh, than, than many uh, other sports industries. They draw audiences of tens of millions of people. And uh, the people who are playing in these esports, they are not, you know, uh, six foot tall. They're, they're not, uh, they're, they're not uh, pumped up with muscles and steroids, but they are just using their brains to solve uh, challenges on the screen and to prove themselves more intelligent, more capable than the people they are playing against. So you know it's wondrous. Uh, we've we've turned into a society that, in a way, uh, appreciates intelligence. We didn't even notice when while it happened, but mm-hmm. that's where we are now. Yes, and it's amazing. I love it. Um, so yeah, we're not we're not we can talk about nerd. This is what yeah. the point of the show is. We're here to talk about nerdy stuff, and I brought you on here to discuss basically science fiction, science fact, the uh, the future. Because um, I, I came across an article where you talked about the future of jobs, and I found it super interesting. Um, and so I dove in to find out a little bit more about you. And it turns out that you actually have a PhD in nanotechnology, 
Um, can you kind of explain what that is? Uh, maybe, uh, and also like, what are the benefits? Like what did, what does nanotech bring to us now? And maybe some of the negatives or, um, just kind of give us a broad overview of what, what is nanotechnology? Wow. Well, that's an, uh, that's a topic <laughs> <of> lecture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Sum well, it up in a couple of words, right? No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not very good with just a couple of words. And you know, that <laughs> stop me and direct me. Oh, I'm going to just, you know, spill it, uh, spill it all. But um, nanotechnology basically is technology, meaning developing tools and uh, utilizing techniques at uh, the nanometer scale, meaning one billionth of a scale. That's approximately, very, very approximately, the size of a, a molecule. And that means that with nanotechnology, we are not focusing on, uh, on large machinery, on uh, airplanes and so on, but we are focusing on the most minicule um, uh, dimensions of uh, matter, and we can engineer them. So suddenly we can engineer, for example, we can engineer uh, airplanes' uh, wings so that uh, there is less drag. So the airplane can actually move faster and they require less fuel. We can create better, uh, better metals. We can create a, a more, um, a, we can create more resilient uh, plastics or reprogram essentially plastic polymers so that they biodegrade uh, in the sea instead of, uh, instead of being an environmental hazard. Once you use nanotechnology, uh, the possibilities are infinite. They are limitless because you are basically. Oh, sorry. It's okay. Sorry. No worries. Yeah, you, should, you should probably cut that out. That mm -hmm. one out. Um, but but uh, again, the possibilities are infinite, endless because you can basically play with matter, however, in in whatever way uh, you like, and you can already see it in uh, Star Trek where they have the replicator, right? Mm -hmm. Which can make you any kind of meal that you want. Well, that's nanotechnology, because if you have the best nanotechnology, the most advanced nanotechnology in the world, the kind that Eric Drexler was talking about already some 40 years ago, if you have uh, nano replicators and uh, nano 3D printers, things that can play with atoms and attach them together to create new matter, then you can turn, for example, waste even biological waste into steak, into meat, into you can you can uh, take any kind of liquid and turn it into fresh water and so on. So nanotech, I really believe it's uh, one of the ways for mankind to um, to, to really sustain itself in the long run. Um, yeah, I hope we'll get there. We'll, I hope we'll get there soon. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It sounds like that sounds like that could be the key to um a lot of the problems that we have as as humanity as we move forward we'll talk a little bit about things like global warming and uh waste and and overpopulation and things like that i think we'll get to some of those things so it sounds like nanotech could be a solution to a lot of the problems that we bring upon the world or am i is, is that true is that how you view it as well can you say it again, please? I'm sorry. That nanotech could be the solution to a lot of the problems that we are creating for ourselves. So absolutely. things like... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I it could definitely be the solution to our environmental problems, for example. If you're concerned about having too much CO2 in the atmosphere, then you can just use nanotechnological solutions to sequester that carbon dioxide 
and uh, so, so that it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, float up there in the atmosphere anymore. If you think you don't have enough water, enough food, or they told you, you can we can uh, create new food. Uh, we are not there yet. We are still very far away from uh, those kind of capabilities. But assuming that science and technology keeps uh, developing and advancing at the pace that we've seen so far, we should get there uh, by the end of the century or so. Well, that sounds very promising because uh, I, for one, am very concerned with the environment. Um, probably not as I, pro- I probably don't like, I don't have a tiny house or anything like that. But I, I am aware of like how much water I use. You know, when I, when I brush my teeth, I make sure not to leave it running. You know, things like that. Um, but I am very concerned with with the the way the CO two in in the world and and global warming it, that, that does concern me. So that does bring me a little bit of <laughs> solace, like I guess with with nanotech. So that's pretty cool. Um, that being said, I want to pivot now to a little bit about. So what happened was I came across an article where it was about the future of jobs, and the title was basically the end of the world as we know it for the average person. Does this sound familiar to you? Yeah, yeah. Actually, some some. Uh... Some newspapers actually just shortened it into a future. It says it's the end of the world. Oh, really? So. <laughs> that sounds yeah. very, uh, that talk about uh, clickbait. <laughs> that's like super oh, yeah. clickbait. And it um, works, I guess. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that's crazy. But I saw the actual complete one. Um, can you uh, explain what that means? And uh, I, what does that mean? The end of the world, as we know it for the average person when it comes to the future of jobs. Yeah, in a way, there's nothing new about it. For the last uh, 150 years, we've noticed uh, a polarization in the in the in the labor uh, market, in the work market, which basically means that uh, you see a drift away from the uh, from the middle, from the middle class, from the jobs that don't require too much expertise and too much proficiency. Usually, you know, they require something like. Um, a, 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 a BSc uh, or something like that, you know, a first degree in university. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've noticed and we're seeing that on the one the one hand, um, you see that uh, people with high level of high levels of expertise, high levels of proficiency, people with a PhD, people with uh, with uh, an MSc, and so on, those people um, are actually needed much more. Than ever before, and they are get, and their salaries are getting dramatically larger. So on the one hand, you see that we need more people with higher expertise. On the other hand, you see that we need more people uh, with lower expertise, uh, with with, uh, with a skill set that does not take a long time to uh, to cultivate and uh, to, and uh, to sustain. For example, think about uh, taxi drivers. Okay. Um, just uh, 10 years ago, if you wanted to be a taxi driver in London, you would have needed to, to memorize all the streets, the, the, uh, the layout of the city. If you wanted to be a taxi driver anywhere else, you still needed to know basically where you are, where you're going, what, where you need to go, and so on. Um, but now, everybody can be taxi drivers. Anyone can, uh, can be a taxi driver uh, using Uber. Why? Because uh, if you're an Uber driver, you have Google Maps, you have Waze, or you have uh, Uber's app that shows you where you need to go uh, in the city. So suddenly everybody can be taxi drivers. So you don't, ne- you don't need a high level of uh, expertise for that. 
and uh, we and uh, we see that uh, there is more demand for people in the service industry. The problem is that uh, what what it means is that the people who used to be in the the middle class, people who used to be you know factory workers, not uh, just your average your your basic grant, but uh, people who, who were engineers in in factories. Uh, people uh, who were working in in other jobs that required some expertise, uh, they are not as needed as before. And what that means is that those average people, the the end of the world is coming for them. They are not going to find work as easily as they did in the last hundred years. It's going to be much more difficult for them. find the to find the walk yeah it's uh i remember being a kid and just everyone was afraid of uh automation taking away factory workers jobs you know when i was i'm 36 now and i remember growing up and probably it was like 60 minutes you know they always do these um these little bits and pieces about you know whatever something new that's coming out but one was about how factory workers were going to lose their jobs either one because Uh, in the United States, China can do the labor for much cheaper, or it was the fact that automation was going to take it away. And I think from that article that I, what I was reading was that that is actually happening right now. Is that correct? Yeah, basically. Uh, actually, the, the jobs that went to China, they're starting uh, to, to disappear as well, because China is also big in, in, uh, on adopting uh, artificial intelligence mm. and creating uh, automated factories. In fact, we can already see in China uh, something that's called dark factories. Factories where you just turn off the lights uh, because the robots don't need lights as mm. much as, you, as human beings do, and you don't want to waste all that electricity and energy. Um, so we are wow. seeing things like that uh, over there. And by the way, some of the jobs that President Trump promised that he will bring, bring back to the states, the you know the, the 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 manufacturing capabilities they are going coming back to the states. There is some drift back from China to the states. But what that means is that the new factories that are being opened on U.S. soil, they don't give back give people back their jobs. Mm. They are just uh, places where the, the new robots are working. So a new factory, a new automated factory, only needs about 10% of the number of people that uh, a factory of the same size used to need just 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, that's interesting because – and also the topic of conversation that I've had with other people was like your iPhone, right? So your iPhone costs so much to make in China, and that's why they can sell it for us. I say cheap, but, you know, say a thousand dollar iPhone here. But it, what everyone says is if, you, if it was made in America, then it would probably cost two to three times, maybe four times as much as what it costs now. Is there any validity to that statement? Or are we seeing, like you're describing, that automation is still taken over in the United States? Will, that, will we see iPhones be able to be cost the same but still be made in the States? Or is that kind of like coming to fruition where we can't make the phones as cheap because China can do it cheaper? I'm afraid I can't answer that question without knowing more about the economy and the okay. no <laughs> and worries how, <laughs> and how smartphones are being uh, produced but I can tell you this um, basically we're now going in 
into a, a new technological revolution, an AI revolution, in which robots can not only do the bulk tasks at the factory, but they can also start performing the very delicate and accurate tasks. We're not completely there yet. It's going to take about a, a decade or two until robots can do things in factories almost until they can do almost all the uh, the work in factories but when we get there it's going to be definitely uh, cheaper to employ robots to do the this work uh, rather than human beings now the question is of course what are you what are uh, chinese uh, factory workers being paid in china mm. and that's a question i can't i can't answer but uh, I, I, I have a feeling that even China is going to replace many of its uh, workers uh, with, uh, with robots. And that's really interesting, too, because from my understanding is that was for the longest time, China could do a lot of a lot of the labor way cheaper than we could do here in the United States. So that's interesting to see. I wonder how the societal shift, like what's going to change as far as jobs when those jobs are gone in China? Like, what are these people going to do in the future? What do you think is going to happen when all of these you know, labor jobs that don't cost a whole lot to do in that country are gone? What, what do you think is going to happen in the job market there? Well, first, there is going to be a major shift and, uh, and uh, nobody knows exactly uh -huh. where it's going to lead us. But I'm an optimist. Uh, you know, I, I, I like uh, the saying that a good futurist is pessimist in the short term because you need to show people what's wrong and uh, you need to think how to fix that and you're an optimist in the long term because eventually we are uh, we are capable of correcting our mistakes and uh, finding solutions to every problem that so far that has been that we've been dealt as a, as the as a human race but uh, in regards uh, to your question we've had these shifts before in the last 250 years since the industrial revolution began we've had those shifts. And if you were to, uh, to go to your grand, 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 grandfather uh, 200 years ago, he was a farmer, right? Everybody, basically 90% mm -hmm. of, uh, of humanity uh, were farmers at, at that time. So he was a farmer. He was walking 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, sometimes 16 hours a day or more when it was really, uh, it, it was really busy. And if you were to tell him that 200 years from now, your job would be to sit down and walk in front of a computer or, you know, just <laughs> sit down and write things on, on a desk. Mm. And you have to tell him that about 50% or 60% of all people are doing just that as their day job. And they're only walking something like six, seven, eight hours a day. He would have been astounded, would have said, no way. What are they going to do? This is not extra, actually walk. And yet we see that uh, this is uh, the case now. So when we have that shift, the one thing that I can promise you is that we'll find other ways uh, to uh, occupy uh, people. People who are rather to say, better to say, people who find other ways uh, to, to make the most out of their time. Some of them, I guess, are going to play video games. Others are going to do things that only human beings can do. And that robots absolutely can't do. Even when robots can do everything, there's still something that human beings uh, can do better. And that's being human. Uh, because when a robot, if a robot uh, is serving me, I know that it's a robot that's serving me. I know that it's very efficient. I know that, that it's very productive. I know that it's very cheap 
to 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 have the to have it uh, servicing me. But if I want to have you no know, a real treat, I'm going to have a human being serving me. I will not go. For example, if I if I choose to take my wife out uh, for our, uh, anniversary, I I won't take her in an autonomous car because that's cheap. That's very efficient. That's very safe. But it's cheap. She was not going to like that. I'm going to take her in a taxi driven by an actual human being because it's such um, an important uh, occasion. And that's how I'm going to show her my love because she sees that I'm investing in her, that I'm willing, you know, I'm sorry if it sounds a little callous, but uh, <laughs> in, in the end, it's, uh, it's virtue signaling. I am signaling to her that she's worth a lot to me. And I'm and I'm willing to spend a lot of money and a lot of effort uh, on uh, on that. So my my thinking is that in the next 20, 30 years, we may just see many many people um, switching over to the service industry and uh, putting a, a premium on uh, on on interactions with each other on uh, expressing their emotions, on making other people feel proud or feel good about themselves, and so on. And uh, you, you can never... Uh, it's, it's a market that, that is going to be forever, because people are always going to want other people to serve them, other people to make them feel good, and so on. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Like, you can't... So in the future, human interaction almost it will be almost um, like, I don't want to say a luxury, but it almost kind of sounds that way. Is that what you're getting at? Like to have human interaction with people, say, in the service industry, that is going to be something of, of more of a luxury that the maybe the one percenter, not one percenters, but the uh, higher income owners will be able to get to. Is that what you're saying? Is that kind of like yeah, way, way yeah. it looks? Yeah, the, the one the one percent are going to you to to get human servitors or human or people who help them all the time because they have the money for it. But the rest of us, we are going to enjoy the best medical services provided by robots and AI consulting services. We are going to enjoy the best AI consulting services in the, in legal matters, in insurance, in ev in in raising our children, everything. But if we want something, you know, special, something beyond that, if we want to show our friends that, yeah, well, they are using AI to get, uh, you know, AI to get medical consulting, but we are better than that. Uh, we, we are actually paying for a human medical doctor to tell us what's wrong with us. Now, behind the scenes, this human medical doctor, what is he going to do? Uh, he's just going to consult with the AI and come back to us and tell us basically what the AI would have told us anyway. But the thing here is that we are paying for a human service, for human compassion, for feeling important because somebody else is uh, serving us. Now, that's really interesting. To when I was actually, I read that in that article that I was telling you about, and it's just really interesting that um, robots or AI-assisted robots will be normal, and it will cost more money to get the, the human interaction, like with a doctor, to have an actual doctor and see them and talk with them. Um, and I started to imagine, like, like you described sitting in a taxi, you could 
talk to the taxi cab driver and he could tell you a story about when he was a kid um and about the street that you go down and how he used to remember going to this movie theater that's 30 years old whereas an ai probably wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to connect with an ai uh, machine driving a car like that and that's how i imagine the story that you're talking about in the future um whereas you have to pay extra to get that interaction with the human to get that connection with them yeah, of course, be aware that this is this is all guesswork, right? Sure. I mean, nobody knows for sure. I can tell you where the technology is almost certainly going to be in a decade or two decades from now. But regarding social trends, that's something completely different. So I'm just guessing. But I am guessing according to the paradigm that has been proven correct time after time, that when you give people abundance, when you give people an abundance in resources and abundance in services and so on, they are going to look for scarcity. They are going to look for what's scarce or what's missing in order to distinguish themselves from each other. Because we as human beings are always competing over, you know, uh, romantic interests and uh, and, uh, and uh, our status in society. Mm-hmm. And the people who have more of the scarce stuff, they are considered better. Um, so uh, this is the, the pattern that we've seen all over history. I see no reason to believe that it's not going to work in the future as well. Yeah, and it, it all makes sense to me. I mean, yeah, it's guesswork. But that kind of leads me into the one question that I should have probably asked you before we started is we, we've mentioned futurists and um, that's what you are. How about, can you explain what a futurist is and what do they do? Oh, they. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the, of the top uh, thinkers in the field of uh, forecasting and future studies is Andy Hines. He just recently wrote a blog post about how vague and fuzzy the definition of, fu- of a futurist is. And he said, this is basically, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, this is basically, uh, by, by, we're doing it intentionally because there are so many different ways to future uh, futurism and to think about the future and uh, but but it it is it does lead to a pr disaster i think that's the way uh, mm-hmm. he said that anyway what what is a futurist so a futurist there there are several types of uh, of futurists i would i would say one of them is uh, a person who is trying to f- provide forecasts for the short-term future, for the near-term future. So people who, who can provide forecasts for the next day or for the, even for the next year. And as uh, the research done by Philip Tetpuk and uh, his colleagues has proven, you have people who are, who, whom he called uh, super forecasters, people who are at the top two percentile uh, of, uh, of all forecasters. And they are actually significantly more accurate uh, um, in the, any prediction that they are giving about the future. Um, uh, but this uh, accuracy only lasts for about a year. I mean, they can predict uh, accurately for longer than that. So a year or so, that's the, that's the limit if you want to really forecast the mm. future. The other kind uh, of futurist that I want to talk about is uh, what I'm doing mostly. We are calling ourselves futures studies researchers. And that's important. We are not forecasters. We are, we are not forecasting future, even though it's really fun, you know, to come up with uh, bombastic uh, forecasts, you may have noticed. But uh, we are trying to study the possibilities. 
we're trying to identify the opportunities that technology or that social trends or that certain events can open for humanity, for society, for a certain company, for a certain government and so on. So we're identifying the opportunities, we're identifying the risks, and we draw scenarios, we create different scenarios, which are essentially, in a way, almost science fiction stories, where we describe what would happen in, uh, in each case. What would happen if somebody took this decision instead of the other? What would happen, what would happen um, if uh, people in the management made a complete shift in the in the way uh, the company uh, behaves and so on so this is what uh, what i basically do i try to look at the future as a, a huge um a cauldron a filled with possibilities and different scenarios and i'm trying to identify the scenarios that seem more likely and to uh, to first to assess their probability as much as possible and it's it's very difficult. Some would say practically impossible, especially <laughs> when you look ten or twenty years into the future. Yeah. But at the very least, by thinking about those scenarios, by analyzing what needs to happen for that scenario to come true, and what needs to happen for that scenario to be uh, to be proven completely wrong, we are already providing decision makers with the tools they need to make more coherent and more intelligent decisions so that's what future studies researchers like me do and that sounds like that that sound that blows my mind it sounds super interesting and that's why one of the reasons why i invited you on on the podcast but it's, it's a dream job man yeah i want, I, I want the big price <laughs> <laughs> well I'm, I'm very happy for you it sounds like you enjoy it and just talking about it and i can hear it in your voice so that's really cool it's funny you mentioned that because like i always joke around like well according to back to the future or blade runner we should be in flying cars by now you know like it's almost you see how they try to at least in science fiction they try to predict what you know what it would be like in the 2000s and it's nowhere nowhere near what these movies were imagining right and no one it's like yeah. it's weird because no one imagined us having a computer in our and at least that i can recall that anyone imagined us having a computer in our hands that we can communicate with actually uh, wait 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 wait. first of all arthur c clark already to, uh, you know talked about that and uh, demonstrate and uh, uh -huh. and show that the possibility in in his books and by the way in his uh, british uh, tv show about the future about 50 years ago, he was already forecasting that people are going to be able to walk in uh, in office, even though they are sitting in other cities. So, you know, hundreds of miles uh, um, distance from uh, where they're actually supposed to walk. So, uh, yeah, there, there are actually been uh, quite a few people talking about oh, really? these things. Yeah, Van, Van, Van Bush. Van Bush, I don't remember the, the correct name. He talked about the memics something like 80 years ago let me see for example you see yeah. i have internet that's great uh, um yeah so uh, van van bush uh, from mit invented the memics back in uh, 1945 and no the memics is essentially uh, wikipedia it's a, he essentially described wikipedia with hyperlinks almost 80 years ago so the people were already thinking about what they could do, how they could, uh, uh, how technology could evolve, but wow, uh, it takes time. That's pretty amazing. I think I'm thinking of Alex. I think it was Alexander Graham Bell was already working on wireless phone technology, 
um, before he passed away, I think, or he just couldn't get it to work properly. I remember being fascinated by that. I think it was Alexander Bell that was working on it. But I remember back then, you know, you think about wireless phone technology, and it just blows my mind of what people were working on 80 to 100 years ago, you know. Um, Absolutely, yeah. That's, that's really cool. I didn't know that. And thank you for sharing that. I mean, the that's the thing is, like, I guess in mainstream science fiction, no one is really, from what I could recall, is, like, no one predicted that we would have these phones that that um, i'm aware of but apparently there are scientists that did predict this that this were going to happen so that's really cool um yeah but uh all right so i want to pivot away from future of jobs and job markets i think that's a little bit boring compared to some of the other stuff like yeah. uh for me i want to get into a little bit of space travel and space science sure, fiction i'm sorry i just want to, to add one more thing i'm sure. really sorry but uh Take it. Take uh, in mind that uh, how long have we had the smartphones for? Something like twelve years, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's just a period. That's just to, to twelve years. And in ten years from now, Apple uh, is saying that they are going to replace the iPhone with virtual reality goggles or augmented reality goggles. Nobody knows exactly what they are going to to do. So you you know, talk to me in fifteen years from now, and we we'll laugh about those people who said that oh, smartphones. They are <laughs> nobody talked about the smartphones. Well, yeah, nobody talked about the smartphones because you know they're just a phase. And uh, twenty years from now, it's going to be very different. The technologies that we are going to use are going to be very different. Yeah, sorry about that, man. No, no, no. That's very interesting because I always I always think about that too. Like, um, are we going to? I can't remember where I saw. Are we gonna? I think it was actually something recent where someone were doing some tests where they would put chips in under their skin, and it when they would walk into their house, everything would change. Right, the lights would come on, their favorite music would play, and then I was started thinking like, what's going to happen where where communication will be a chip where we wear or have inserted into our into our body, and that's something that I was thinking of like, is that what's going to happen to cell phones, and then. Would that turn it? Would that? Would we wear goggles or have contact lenses that give us our information versus us having to take out a phone? Um, mm-hmm. So I'm very interested to see like where communication technology like cell phones is going to go in the next 20 years. It's funny that you mentioned that because I was just having a conversation with somebody about like where where does this is this always going to be this way? Because like I want to get into the space travel next topic with the next topic, yeah, yeah. and and most notably, I'm a pretty big Expanse fan. I've been reading the. The, I read the first book. I'm in the middle of the second book, and they use terminals, which are essentially phones, right? They wear these; they're like these glass phones that can do holograms. They can send messages out whenever they're connected to the network. So, and this is a hundred to three hundred years in the future. I don't know specifically what the time frame is. So, and, and the authors they picture us still having that. So, I found that kind of interesting. They didn't they didn't take the route of wearing contact lenses as form of you know. Communication or having implants and that sort yeah, of well, thing. Well, you know, even even Isaac Asimov, when he wrote Twenty Thousand Years into the Future about his in his Foundation series, you can still see a young girl um, basically using a computer there uh, with uh, you know with uh, without a keyboard, basically still having to to insert uh, cards with holes into the computer <laughs> in order to program. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, when you look at Minority Report, the movie. You'll see that you'll see there are all those crazy cars and robots and mm-hmm. all that. But how do they watch videos in the, the hero's house? Um, they still have uh, DVDs or even video cassettes. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. And it's funny, too, because I was just talking about somebody else. Like, we talk about, like, video calls. Like, I remember when Aliens came out and they were calling each other in the middle of the night and they would show the video of them. I was like, who wants to see my face at 2 o'clock in the morning when they call me? I'm like, I'm not going to allow that. Like, it's just weird how that people think that this is what we want. When really, I don't think anyone wants to see each other's face all the time when we're communicating. There's sometimes, even when I do conference calls at work, like, like you see like one or two people will turn on the video feed, and then everybody else is just does phone. So it's just kind of funny how in movies they predict one thing or they think it's going to go this way, but it really doesn't. Like no one, no yeah. one wants that. Well, um, they they predict uh, the way technology is going uh, to work, and it is a it, we are capable now of uh, transmitting video uh, everywhere. But those uh, people uh, who create the movies just don't know how people will react because we have pretty good models about technology and how technology is going to evolve and develop. But we have very lousy models uh, regarding human beings and how they think and how they act. <laughs> that's the way it is yeah no it's and i, I just uh, find it really funny about like older sci-fi films and just like what sticks and and what didn't um but yeah. so it's we're, we're kind of transitioning over to like i said i want to get to space travel because i'm really into expanse right now i've always been into like aliens um expanse uh, star wars for the most part uh that's more fictiony than sciencey um but so the first question i have about this is how do you see humans expanding to other planets or celestial ob- objects within a solar system, just within our solar system? Um, where do you see the, like, the future of space travel in that aspect turning to? It depends on the, how long uh, into the future you want me to talk about. Are we talking about 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 200 years from now? Okay, so let's say we're supposed to be hitting, we're supposed to be able to get to Mars in the next 30 years, 20 years? Um so, um, I think actually uh, um, I heard uh, the one of the high-ranking officers in SpaceX uh, saying in a recent conference that they are going to send a, a human being to Mars within the next five years. Okay, so uh-huh. in the next five. So let's say that within yeah. the next fifty years, where do you yeah. see space travel? And because there's things like Skyhook that I've I've seen, and the it's just there's so many complex. There's so many issues you have to keeping a human yeah. alive in space. So, well, I, I, you know, I hate, I hate to be a downer, but quite honestly, in this century, I don't see us making really major steps forward in conquering space. I mean, we are going to put somebody on Mars. Yeah. Okay. Yay. Yeah. Great. <laughs> I mean, I, and, and by the way, that's great. I mean, honestly, I, <laughs> I'm going to be rooting for the guy who, who, who does that right. um, or for the team or for the girl or whatever. But um, so what? Yeah. Okay. So we brought a person to Mars. <laughs> okay. And let's even say that we got him back. That's also important. Right. What we really need is resources. We need the resources. And also, as Elon Musk said, we need an insurance uh, for uh, the human race. In case, uh, you know, an asteroid hits Earth, in case there is a nuclear war here, then we need an, uh, we need an insurance, a life, life insurance. But we just don't have to, the technology to support those kind of endeavors right now. Because if you want to have a, an autonomous uh, community on Mars, if you want to have an actual settlement that can support itself, we are nowhere even close to the technology that we need. We need technology that can harvest uh, resources of Mars. We need technology that will enable us to grow plants and food 
on Mars soil or in Mars air or, or in Mars hothouses or whatever. Uh, we need the technology that will allow us to harvest resources from asteroids and from uh, and, and, and from other uh, items uh, and, uh, and objects in space. Um, and those kinds of technologies are are advancing, you know, we are developing them, but we are still very, very far away from having the capability of creating a, a self-sustaining settlement either on Mars or as a space station in space. And I don't think uh, we'll be able to create a self-sustaining settlement uh, in space uh, in this century. Now, th there will be some PR, uh, you know, uh, so, 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 lots of promotions and, uh, and uh, public relations uh, shticks about, yeah, we are sending 10 people to Mars now, and mm -hmm. they are going to stay there for a year. Okay, great. But so what? So, yeah, there, it's going to be great for science. It's going to be great uh, for publicity. Um, but... If, if for in any meaningful way beyond that, it's not it's just not going uh, to work, unless of course we are going to come up with some amazing technological discovery, uh, and, and in that case, everything is uh, is open for grabs. Nobody knows. Yeah, they, um... don't see, they don't see that coming, unfortunately. And this is you talking about like colonizing Mars, essentially. So one of the big things that I saw that is an issue is we don't i don't i don't maybe i don't know if this has been discovered or not but we don't know if there's any nitrogen in the soil of mars which is kind of like important for um plant life correct <laughs> yeah. so yeah kind of important, yeah, kind of important. Just <laughs> yeah. yeah um and it, yeah now pay, pay you know you need to to understand also that if, if we have top-notch nanotechnology then you can basically recycle everything. Mm. Then you can basically transport to Mars whatever uh, food uh, you have and uh, all the waste that uh, the human beings excrete along the way to Mars can be recycled. You can recycle the, uh, the, um, the nitrogen. Uh, maybe you can also uh, harvest nitrogen, uh, maybe not from Mars soil. Maybe you can harvest it from asteroids or from other uh, uh, objects in space. But yeah, there, there's also so much we don't know yet about Mars and uh, about the conditions uh, in space and how human beings can live in space, how human beings can procreate in space, whether embryos can even uh, develop in a human womb in space or even in artificial wombs in space. Nothing is, uh, is obvious and nothing is clear right now. So there is so much unknown, unfortunately. I think it's going to take us a lot of time to figure all those things out. And that's interesting too, because Mars, uh, the gravity, I want to say Mars is like a third of the size of earth. If I remember, if I'm can remember correctly. So it's smaller. So therefore the gravity is less than what we have at earth. And we wouldn't know what it would mean like to have prolong, uh, pro prolonged time in that type of G. Right. Yeah. And so that's what you're referencing is like, can, can someone have a child? You know, in in those conditions, in in that type of gravity, and that's why I don't kind of like why I like the expanse because they talk about that and how people are taller living on asteroids and on on Earth because there's lower gravity, and then they have issues um, living or 
getting around on Earth because they're not used to the Earth's gravity. So it's just kind of interesting on humans will adjust to these these things. So we don't know. We just don't know what could happen. So let's uh, say. But uh, but you know uh, the the author of uh, oh I forgot what what is his name not David Eddings the the one who um, wrote uh, um, those two major novels about uh, uh, the future well a lot of people talk about that uh, genetic engineering we can use genetic engineering to reconfigure our physiology uh, to space and even even maybe even our psychology uh, to living uh, in outer space and they think that's that those are beautiful ideas but obviously <laughs> they are pretty frightening for mo- for uh, most of humanity yeah so, it's, it's a lot of ethics involved there huh well you know i i'm uh, i believe that uh, if you are that, that you're basically in charge of your body as long as you don't uh, uh, harm anyone as long as mm-hmm. you don't uh, pose any danger to anyone feel free to do with your body as you like, but I think such ventures, if you were to go out to outer space and decide to engineer your body, you're not going to be to do that alone. You're going to have to, to take, you know, a thousand people with you and they and they all will need to undergo genetic engineering as well. And that's where the questions start to arise. Is this everybody's, is, is this every individual's decision? Um, what's going to happen to the kids and so on? Um, yeah, but that's good. There, there's still some time until we get there. Yeah, I, <laughs> there's yeah, there seems to be some time before we can alter the the human genome and change stuff about our bodies. But it's 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 just such a difficult thing to do to travel in space. Okay, so let's say that we conquer those uh, issues with um, living in outer space you know like we were past you said past 100 years from now we we conquer mars we can do it we can live there how how do you see what propulsion system do you see us using like do you think that you see us using because one of the things that i saw was skyhook which was really really interesting because apparently it's been it's a a tested method of traveling space where you have this thing that spins in space and basically just slingshots you across and it doesn't require much fuel or any type of engine necessarily to get you to far distances in our solar system um how do you see the travel aspect work in the future and say after 100 years from now well as long as, long as we're talking about uh, mars or any other you know space stations that are in the same vicinity and because honestly there is no if you if you want to, to settle anywhere anywhere else in the solar system beyond mars it's going to be quite difficult for you right mm-hmm. not enough uh, not enough uh, some energy um, and uh, what are you, where, where are you going to settle on gas planets exactly? Um, so as long as you just want to settle in the vicinity, uh, somewhere between Earth to uh, to Mars, I think the propulsion almost doesn't matter. I mean, you can get uh, to Mars in, in something like between one year to three years. And if you can have a colony on Mars that can self-sustain itself, if you have the technology for that, then your spaceships are going to be quite self-sustaining as well. Um, and uh, people can either be hibernating there or they can be connected to World of Warcraft, almost the same. <laughs> um, we'll find things for for people uh, uh, to do. So, yeah, I, I don't think the propulsion is going to be um, the issue. 
Um, we are going to have to develop uh, some systems like uh, Skyhook, like uh, the space elevator uh, that uh, will be able uh, to haul um, very large weights uh, from uh, Earth to near-Earth orbit uh, and, uh, at, a very, at a very low cost. Right now, we don't have anything even remotely close to that. Um, but uh, in a hundred years, you know, all bets are off. Right, exactly. I, I, can, I can say anything <laughs> I want. I'm not going to be there. Um, okay, yeah, that's so. Yeah, that, I, there's a couple of things I wanted to get into with space travel, but I think I'm going to end it there. Um, what, well, actually, there's one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on is the Fermi paradox. Uh, can you one? Uh, are you? Fam- I'm sure you're familiar with the Fermi paradox, yes, correct? Yes. Um, can you? Yeah, I, I call it the "Where are they?" paradox. Yes, exactly. Can you sort of explain that and then give me your thoughts on it? I'm just kind of curious to know, like, what you think. For people that are listening, you can probably explain it better than me. But uh, kind of explain it and what your thoughts are on the Fermi paradox. Sure. Well, obviously, I'm not an expert on other sure. either space exploration, Fermi paradox, uh, or anything uh, like that. I am, I, honestly, as a futurist, as a future studies researcher, I'm not an expert on anything except for methodologies for studying the future. I dabble in everything to better understand what we can do, but okay, I'm not sure. an expert. Okay, okay, okay. But the Fermi paradox basically says that uh, that if uh, in our galaxy there are millions of star systems and planets that you know probably can can sustain life life can probably develop on those uh, far away planets as well and in, 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 you know it doesn't have life doesn't have to uh, to develop on ev- each and every planet throughout the the galaxy it's enough for life to develop on just one planet Maybe ten planets, right? maybe one hundred planets. That's nothing. That's a drop in the sea. But if if uh, technological civilizations were to arise in the, in those planets, then they would start sending their spacecraft everywhere throughout the galaxy. They would fill out the the entire galaxy with their spacecraft, with their exploration teams, and so on. Or at the very least, they'll they'll send some radio signals to mm-hmm. try to make contact with other civilizations. So the question is, the frame paradox is, if we are so certain that out of millions of planets, at least one had to have, you know, a, a, a life, intelligent life developing in, on it, where is it? Why haven't we been contacted yet? Because the universe has been existing for the last 15 billion years or so, don't, don't, don't uh, catch me on that. <laughs> right, right. The exact number, but um, but you know, the, we and, and just in the last two hundred years, the human race once it uh, uh, once it uh, decided to really adopt the uh, the scientific approach, we had amazing leaps forward. In two hundred years from now, we're probably going to uh, to colonize uh, certain parts of our solar system. A thousand years from now, we'll go beyond that. Maybe, maybe earlier, I hope earlier, but, you know, who knows? Um, so those planets, millions of planets, millions of pos- potential civilizations would have had not a thousand years. They, would have, they could have existed for the last million years. So where are 
all those intelligent aliens? Why don't why can't we why haven't we been approached yet? This is the Fermi paradox. And if I may, I have a very simple answer to it. Sure. Uh, an answer that is uh, on the one hand uh, an answer that may be a little <laughs> depressing, honestly. <laughs> um, because <clears throat> you know, we, we assume that uh, that any alien civilization will just want to expand and to go forward and meet other alien civilizations and so on. Um, but one answer to that may be that um, no, there is no real reason for any civilization to expand forward in, a in the physical dimension. When they can run simulations, when they can create metrics-like uh, simulations that every alien individual can just, you know, live inside those uh, those simulations, they don't, they won't feel any need to explore space. They can just keep on existing in their own small territory, in their own planet or their solar system, uh, running their simulations there expanding their population because you can you can create uh, the compu the computational infrastructure at a much uh, cheaper cost than you need uh, to support more human lives or alien lives i assume as i said this is all guesswork so one possible uh, answer is that the aliens aren't coming because they're going they, they instead of going outwards they've decided to go inwards and uh, just live in their own simulated uh, worlds. That's that's obviously that's just one explanation. Um, and other uh, thinkers like Alistair Reynolds and uh, Carl Sagan have come up with uh, with other explanations. I guess uh, we'll have to to wait and uh, find out. Yeah, but it's really gr I'm really glad you brought that up because I. I transitioned into the last few questions, last few topics that I had, um, and that was religion and kind of like the evolution of religion. We've seen a change in religion over time to multiple deities or gods to one god to now sort of you were talking about simulation theory, right? That's kind of like the new thing, newer thing I, 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 from my experience. I, it was something that I've come across in the past few years, most notably when The Matrix came out, was like how I got thrust into this idea that we are actually living in a simulation. I thought it was kind of silly when I heard that scientists were actually discussing this, but then when I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson say that he actually kind of <laughs> believed it, I was like, okay, this is something yeah. real. This is something that's really going on that people are actually... Uh, uh, we need to think about it. Yes, exactly. And that's where that's why I brought up the Fermi paradox because we have not found any type of life for you know outside of Earth, whether it's uh, single-cell organisms or intelligent life it's all here and that's one of the uh, one of the arguments for simulation theory so um i wanted to get your thoughts on well we actually kind of provided some of your thoughts on us believing we are actually living in a simulation and is this the future of religion is this kind of like how we're evolving to uh what, what we are evolving to as a mainstream religion too much you're, you're asking you're asking me to go head to head with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. I'm not there, man. But, uh, but, 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 okay, but let me just uh, explain why people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elon Musk, uh, Nick Bostrom, mm -hmm. who invented the simulation uh, uh, 
uh, hypothesis. Why they're getting? Why they're thinking about it so seriously? The idea is that uh, in the future, uh, the our our descendants in the future are going to enjoy huge computing powers, right? And I think we can agree uh, about that. Uh, so sure. they'll use this computing power to run simulations of their forefathers, um, and uh, uh, it's. Uh, it's pretty easy to understand because, you know, my kid uh, likes to play Sims. Mm. I don't know if it's Sims 3, 4 or whatever right now. He likes to play Civilization. Um, so it's not that crazy to think that if you have really, really uh, advanced computers, you're basically going to run Civilization 700 or something like that, in which the, the, um, the, the people on the board, the units on the board, actually have their own internal worlds, have actually have their own internal uh, uh, thoughts uh, and so on. And they're not even aware that they are part of a simulation. Um, now, Bostrom's uh, argument is that if we assume that in the future, when we go, when we get to the stars, and we are talking, you know, thousands of years into the future, if we assume that there are going to be not eight, uh, seven, not 7.3 billion people alive as we have today, but instead there are going to be 100 people, uh, 100 billion people mm. alive. And let's say that each of those people, uh, each of those individuals runs 10 simulations of history. That's not crazy, right? I mean, I right. play civilization, you can play it every, <laughs> every day. Um, so in that case, that means that uh, the uh, 100 billion people running 10 simulations each you're getting to trillion uh, a, a trillion simulations here so just consider that you who are listening to to me talking right now well you know what are the chances that you are the original you or that you are just a copy of a person from the 21st century uh, and and you need to understand that there are a trillion copies Okay, that's what Bostrom says, that there are going to be a trillion copies in the future of you. So what are the chances that you are the original you or that you are a simulation? You are a copy. So it's one, one to trillion. Um, so, and uh, that's basically Bostrom's uh, argument. Um, now, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, hypothesis and, and, and I love it. It's beautiful because it makes us rethink the nature of uh, reality, to rethink what is real mm -hmm. and what isn't. And I, you know, I can't refute it, but I'm also, uh, so, so, so I'm, if, I, if I can't refute it, I don't really treat it as science. Sure. Um, and uh, what it basically means is that since we can't refute it, um, we're, I'm, I'm not going to let it uh, affect my, the, the way in which I act mm -hmm. in the present. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to uh, try to refute it or to test it by suiciding right. um, <laughs> and leaving the simulation behind me. Because if, because if I'm wrong, I'm dead. Um, but, uh, but I will say that if there are, uh, if our descendants are running these simulations and they are watching our lives and they are you know uh, looking at us as if we are in a reality show then that means that you want to be the most interesting the most fascinating the most out there 
person in the simulation. So I say uh, you, you need to live a life that is as interesting as possible so that, uh, so that the, those people out there, up there don't uh, shut uh, down the simulation anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, my, so my boss is big on simulation theory and he kind of turned me to it uh, recently in the past few months. I've been reading about it. I've been watching videos on it and just kind of researching it a little bit, just kind of like what I do. You know, I dive into sci-fi, I dive into science. So it's interesting. I'm not, I'm just an amateur. I don't know how you would explain it. I just like to broaden my intellect, I guess, you know, listen to podcasts, watch uh, movies, documentaries, read books, whatever. Um, just to try to, you know, simulate my mind. And this was one of the things that just really, like, I, I, I agree what you're saying. Like, it, there's no evidence and you can't refute it, but you also can't prove it. So it just really makes you think, like, holy crap. Like, <laughs> like, you, like when... yeah, but, but, you know, if, if the human race were to just uh, eliminate itself in the next decade or two, then, uh, yeah, all the... All the the, the stipulations behind the, the behind this hypothesis they're proven uh, false so yeah that's true well, yeah. well we might not even be able to make it to space travel <laughs> because of uh um what we have going on right now we nuclear war we might heat our planet up too too much because of co2 we might not even survive to to make it outside and figure out what happens but maybe that's part of the simulation maybe that's one of the results that they'll get so um but that's that's actually the last question that I had for you. I didn't want to go. There's a ton of other stuff I'd love to poke your brain about and get your thoughts on because um, it's been really interesting and I've, I've really enjoyed your explanations and your thoughts on a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. So um, I just want to thank you. I did not expect you to respond to my email. So this has been a pleasant surprise and I'm very happy that you came on and discussed this with me. Um, if anyone wanted to reach out to you, do you have a website or maybe an email address that I can? I'll also put it in the um, description of the podcast. Do you have? Yeah, anything? it's called uh, it's called curatingthefuture.com, and you can always uh, search for my name on Google, Roy Cezana. Uh, good luck. Uh, spelling. <laughs> It'll be in the description. So if yeah, if you want to know how to spell it, I'll put it in there. So yeah, um, on, on your website. Uh, but yeah, uh, search for me. There, yeah. there can't be too many futurists called Royce. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd be surprised if there was more than more than one. But hey, you never know. So, um, but thanks again for coming on. It was a pleasure and an honor having you having you and to discuss all these things with you. It's been a lot of fun. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you again. Thank you so much for inviting me and for asking all those questions and sharing your own thoughts with me. It was, <laughs> uh, quite enlightening. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. everyone and thank you for listening to nerds adulting a podcast where grown-up nerds discuss being an adult and how nerd culture influenced us and still is on this podcast i invite special guests to discuss certain topics that include parenting violent video games television movies streamers game developing and anything else considered part of nerd culture 
I've been a nerd my entire life, and even as an adult, I'm still vested in nerd culture, whether it be TV, movies, video games, or technology. I'm also a parent who unsurprisingly rubbed off on my children, who are now developing their own nerdy interests as well. I love the aspects of nerd culture and how it intertwines with us now as adults. How do we juggle our hobbies along with being a husband or wife, our jobs, being a parent? This is what this podcast is about, how we still are nerds even as adults. You know, nerd culture is mainstream now. So when you use the word nerd derogatorily, it means you're the one that's out of the zeitgeist.